This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, we hear about a historic crime spree that's hit every corner of America since the beginning of the pandemic. Three years after the start of the pandemic, the size and scale of COVID-related fraud is staggering. Crosscut investigative reporter Brandon Block recently dug into just how easy it was for individuals and businesses to scam federal pandemic relief programs out of anywhere from thousands to tens of millions of dollars. Now, prosecutors say the more than 1,500 charges already brought across the country for these types of crimes are just a drop in the bucket. The U.S. Attorney's Office in eastern Washington, for instance, has charged 14 people in one business so far with charges including wire fraud, bank fraud, and identity theft on counts involving more than $20 million in total. Of course, pandemic funding did help millions of people and businesses stay afloat in a critical time. But it's unclear whether prosecutors will ever get to the bottom of the fraud that came along with it. So, Brandon, I was curious, what got you started on this particular reporting journey? What got you interested in pandemic fraud? I think really where it started was wanting to take a look back at some of the earliest pandemic relief programs and kind of the legacy that that they've had. The program that we pay most attention to in in this piece of the Paycheck Protection Program, which was the business loan program. Two new federal programs could become lifelines for businesses. One of them, the Paycheck Protection Program. It was part of the CARES Act, which was one of the earliest and most consequential government responses to the pandemic. We're talking about March 2020, so right in the thick of um, when the pandemic was really just beginning and and it was this really scary time. As the pandemic continues, some of the biggest unknowns right now center around the economy. It's going down the tubes. I mean, every number that we're looking at is jaw-droppingly bad. PPP in particular, the Paycheck Protection Program, was really one of the biggest programs as part of the biggest stimulus that the United States has ever passed. PPP was $800 And that was a pretty massive part of the CARES Act, which was $2 trillion. It is the largest economic stimulus package in recent memory, $2.2 trillion. And the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, that one program alone is about as big as the entire government response to the 2008 crisis. Wow. Wow. And I think it's kind of easy to forget how important it was because so much has happened When the CARES Act was first passed, it was massively bipartisan. Um, Every single senator voted for it, Mm. which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, But I think pandemic relief programs have almost come to be identified with fraud and waste and abuse. Billions of dollars in pandemic assistance stolen by scammers. It's been called an unprecedented wave of fraud. A new federal report says a U.S. government agency dropped the ball on preventing billions of dollars in fraudulent loans. And part of that is because of how these early programs played out. Even though, you know, I, I think by some measures it was a great success. I mean, you could compellingly argue that it saved the economy from catastrophic ruin. Um, And I think it's worth just kind of remembering how dire the situation was. Jump in unemployment, the worst one-month loss in American history, frankly. We're talking about a time where between March and April, 16 million Americans lost their jobs, which is a pretty incredible statistic. I mean, we're talking about, like, almost overnight, uh, the unemployment rate quadruples. We've never seen 
anything like the unemployment claims filings that we've seen over the last month. So, you know, a, an economic disaster, the likes of which the country hasn't seen, I think, really since the Great Depression. Right. And so as part of the CARES Act, we have these loan programs, for example, these expanded unemployment benefits that were made available essentially immediately, right? The rollout was pretty fast. And, and really, that was the, the number one priority, uh, especially with the business loan programs, uh, with the business loans within weeks. Um, and that was part of one of the things that that made the program really challenging to protect against fraud because the goal uh, and Congress was was pretty explicit about this was to get this money out as soon as possible um, because businesses were closed and they you know were at at great risk of going bankrupt and and laying off their employees and this was what was happening at the time is these mass layoffs and so it was very consciously done at a breakneck pace to avoid an even more devastating economic collapse. I mean, it sounds like because of the speed of the program, there weren't a lot of safeguards, right? I mean, it was just like people would essentially self-certify or were there any barriers? Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible how easy it was to get a Paycheck Protection Program loan. Just, I think, a couple of illustrative examples. There's, there's one case uh, in Washington where uh, you're supposed to in some cases, submit uh, an IRS tax form from the previous year showing, like, the uh, business's revenues from the last year. And in one case, someone just submitted a blank form. Oh. Um, and they still got $30,000. So... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just to give you a sense of of how little oversight there was of this process, and, and I don't know how... Uh, you know, I can't I can't speak to how how many times that happened or if that was, you know, just one person's error or or if that was a, a broader thing. But there are certainly a lot of other examples of situations where lenders were just really not doing their due diligence mm -hmm. on these loans. There are other sort of kind of common sense fraud checks that will usually happen in a, in a normal environment when you're applying for a loan. Um, and uh, in a lot of cases, those just didn't happen. Notably, there was a report that came out a couple months ago that said that uh, lenders were not checking against the uh, what's called the do not pay list. The Department of the Treasury maintains a, a list of organizations that are like under investigation, for example. Um, and, and so that was not checked. There were something like five billion of loans went to people with social security numbers that didn't match what's in the like federal registry. Wow. The other big thing is that the loan applications weren't checked against each other. Uh, so if someone applied for multiple different types of loans and they said different things about their company, um, sometimes they wouldn't be the lender wouldn't check to see if if they were consistent. So, do we even have a ballpark? sense of the scope of the fraud, the amount of fraud, the amount of money. No one really knows how much fraud there was. On Capitol Hill today, even the nation's top watchdog said they don't know how much money was stolen. There are uh, widely varying estimates by different governmental entities, and there's also academics who are studying this. The estimates that I've seen put it anywhere between 32 billion and 100 billion. Wow. Which any way you slice it, yeah, is, is an enormous uh, amount. So yeah, anywhere from like kind of 4 to 12 percent uh, are the estimates that I've seen. Wow. 
it sounds like the Department of Justice is is really starting to crack down. Perhaps they have been cracking down on some of this fraud. What are they doing now? So the the main thing that they've started doing over the last year or two is criminally indicting people who defrauded the program. And, you know, this is done because this is a, is a federal program. It's a federal crime. So, so they're being charged by federal prosecutors um, in U.S. attorney's offices uh, across the country. And, you know, I think the challenge there is that each office maybe has a couple of people or maybe they only have one person who is is focusing on these cases um, in addition to all of the other things that federal prosecutors do. And are there additional resources that the federal government is allocating to the prosecution of this kind of fraud at the moment? Yeah, the the Department of Justice has definitely placed an emphasis on bringing these cases uh, to justice. In eastern Washington, uh, where, where my story is focused, they have formed what they're calling a strike force team to uh, specifically go after pandemic-related fraud. And they've got four different attorneys kind of working part-time on these cases. The thing that's challenging about fraud cases is they often take a long time to investigate. From what prosecutors tell me, uh, sometimes can take years to investigate. So what they've done is that they've put together these teams to try to uh, kind of expedite moving these cases along and, and getting them indicted. Some of the PPP cases are, are a little bit simpler than than maybe a traditional white-collar fraud investigation. If a business simply didn't exist and someone made up a business to get a loan, uh, that, that that's fairly easy to prove. You know, if, if you actually have a business, it's typically registered with the state. You've paid taxes to the IRS. There's documents that you can check. I think where it gets more complicated is uh, real businesses that took this money and then used it improperly. Mm. That requires uh, a higher level of of investigation, right? And these strike force teams, um, which sounds quite menacing. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely sounds more intense than a task force, right? <laughs> it does, indeed. So there's one in Eastern Washington, and then these specific teams are throughout the country at U.S. Attorney's offices throughout the country. There's a handful uh, around the country, and do you know why Washington? Got one just because they have the expertise in Eastern Washington office. Yeah, they told me that it was just a, a really a priority that emerged from from their office that they felt like this was an important thing to to be spending their time on. Mm-hmm. And I will say that like um, there are other offices around the country. You know, I'm thinking about the Western Washington office in Seattle. They don't have like a quote unquote strike force that they've designated, um, but they've certainly handled a number of pandemic fraud related cases and 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 some pretty sophisticated ones as well. So I think that a lot of DOJ offices are, across the country are, are paying close attention to this, even if they haven't necessarily like made a quote-unquote team. Mm-hmm. I mean, you looked into a lot of different specific cases and uh, publicly available documents, I know, for this reporting. Um, you reached out to some defendants and no one was willing to speak with you on the record, I understand. But you, you were able to pull a lot of details from a lot of publicly available documents. I was wondering if there were stories that stick out to you from the documents that represent, for example, a typical case. Yeah, I think some of the most typical cases, to speak generally, would be someone who made up a business and got, I don't know, $50,000 
for a business that that didn't exist. Um, or they had a, a business that was something that they started and they didn't have any employees. Um, it's like maybe more of a, a side hustle. You know, there's also a, a handful of cases that are more, uh, I guess, more sophisticated types of fraud. There were two companies, for example, at the the Hanford nuclear site, companies that do contracting work there that didn't need the money. They had a government contract already that was doing quite well um, and just applied for for this loan, saying they were going to use it to pay their employees. And, and the executive of the company just kind of pocketed the money. Wow. So there are some examples of of that too, and those are those are talking like in the I think it was like one point two or one point three million. Oh wow! And in terms of larger amounts of money, was there a case or two that you came across that had maybe even more money involved than that in Washington? Yeah. So some of the largest cases in Washington have actually involved like international scams. There was a pretty high profile case of a politician in Nigeria who had basically stolen the identities of, uh, I think it was some 20,000 Americans and, and was using them to file just unemployment claim after unemployment claim. Authorities say Rufai used stolen identities and altered email addresses to submit these fraudulent claims between March and October of 2020. And it was actually kind of part of the reason they ended up having to shut down the unemployment system in Washington for several days. This was like early on uh, in the pandemic. Wow. But um, some pretty, yeah, some pretty kind of sophisticated schemes like that, that we're talking about like millions of, of dollars. Something that is unique and interesting about this circumstance is that the scale of the fraud is so vast that one of the sources uh, who you talked to was mentioning that for a lot of federal fraud cases, typically, if the loss, total loss for a single case is under $100,000, typically those cases will not be prosecuted. It's not uh, common that that amount of loss will be kind of worth it, I guess. But in these cases, often that amount of money is being pursued. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Is that just because we're just talking about quantity of cases it's just like the total amount of money is still worth pursuing i guess yeah so there's there's not a hard and fast rule the yeah. federal government's never going to come out and say like we won't charge cases that right. are, <laughs> for obvious reasons right <laughs> um and so but i did talk to a defense attorney in new york who who's handled a number of of covid fraud cases and he seemed to feel that the sort of calculation for when a federal prosecutor will decide that a case is worth their time has shifted because of because of the immense fraud that we've seen in these programs that you know they might be more likely to bring a $40,000 case a $60,000 case if it is someone scamming the government on a PPP loan than they might be you know for any other type of fraud um and 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 the prosecutors that that I spoke to Kind of acknowledge that um, that that there is something to that, um, and and I, and I think really what it is is that they want to send a message. And on the other hand, what also seems very clear from your reporting is that prosecutors 
we'll never get to the bottom of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when you talk to federal officials, they are very much like we're committed to getting to the bottom of, of every one of these cases. And, um, you know, crime crime doesn't pay and we're going to prove that crime doesn't pay. And, you know, I, I think they very much mean what they say. But at the same time, it is really hard to imagine getting to the bottom of this. I think, you know, the prosecutors that I've talked to have, have acknowledged pretty directly that even if they put every single prosecutor in their office on PPP, you know, it would take years. And they, they even in that case, they might never get to the bottom of all of these. So I, I think they've acknowledged that there are going to have to be decisions made about which cases are going to be uh, prioritized and, and, and which cases are going to be charged and, and which cases are not going to be charged. And I, I think it is likely that some people will just get away with it. So Congress recently extended the uh, statute of limitations on CARES Act-related fraud. Um, So they now have 10 years to go after these cases. My message to those cheats out there is this. You can't hide. We're going to find you. We're going to make you pay back what you stole and hold you accountable under the law. That was President Biden signing legislation to extend the statute of limitations for some pandemic-related fraud. So that does give them more time and I think, you know, will allow them to get to more of them. But the other thing that um, the attorneys in eastern Washington told me was that, um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen between now and 2033. Mm. You know, in in their experience, they said there tend to be like new crises that emerge. Um, You know, if we're thinking about... Uh, at least the, the the one prosecutor that I spoke to in in Spokane told me, you know, he started it around 2008 uh, when there was the mortgage crisis and there were all these cases related to the mortgage crisis that they needed to do. Um, and before you know it, now it's the opioid crisis and there's all these opioid cases. So, um, you know, he's kind of like, I'd be surprised if there wasn't a new priority that emerged, you know, before that 10 years is up. You know, I feel that there is a central tension in this situation here around the pandemic loans because the country was in economic freefall. The federal government was scrambling to figure out what to do. Seems like the thinking was, well, uh, we're going to get the money out now and we're going to catch the perjury later. And that's (laughs) how it's going to be. That was definitely the choice and the trade-off that was made. Um, And I think very consciously, um, Mm. you know, Congress... Uh, very much was like, get this money out now. And and I think there was a, an understanding even at the time that that would make these programs vulnerable to fraud. And I think it pretty quickly became clear that uh, that, that that was a trade-off that was made. I don't think that that necessarily had to happen. I, I do, from folks that I've talked to, it sounds like there were some pretty specific choices that were made mm. um, that really made those programs susceptible to fraud. Yeah, I mean, I I guess, yeah, I was going to ask you sort of directly. I was wondering what your sources think, what lessons the government could take from this situation. I mean, what should the government do next time? There are, I think, some pretty reasonable measures that could have been taken. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, we were talking about earlier the example of the blank document that was submitted. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, how long would it have taken to open the document and see mm. if there was anything in there? Um, mm-hmm. y- you know, there are some reports that have come out from like congressional oversight committees recently that showed that the companies that were put in charge of of vetting the loans for fraud 
Uh, these are not the banks themselves, but other financial technology companies. These financial technology companies were paid by commission. Um, so, you know, the incentive structure was such that it made sense to approve as many loans as possible, um, you know, if you're being paid on commission. And so I, I think there were some pretty perverse incentives that were set up. You know, the people that I've talked to feel that, and there have been a number of, of reports from, I'm thinking, from the congressional committee that was formed uh, along with the CARES Act called the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. They've put out a number of reports um, basically listing, like, here are the things that could have been done. Um, to to tighten up these programs uh, a little bit. A lot of people understand why it was important to get this money out quickly at the time, um, but uh, I think it, it definitely didn't need to be this bad. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Brandon Block and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docu-series we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the story we discussed today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.